Well, if you would turn uh, with me in your Bibles to Psalm 7. So in the the church Bibles, uh, it is page uh, 545, uh, the larger print 843. uh, And if you haven't got either of those, just if you open up your Bibles in the middle, uh, it's likely you'll open it in the Psalms. And we're going to look at the, the seventh Psalm. So let me read uh, this psalm. Some of these words will be familiar from uh, what we've just been singing. So Psalm 7, a Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Lord my God, if I have done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I have repaid my ally with evil or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God. Decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God, who probes minds and hearts. My shield is God most high, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. This is God's word. And I've called this uh, sermon the Song of the Slandered Saint. The Song of the Slandered Saint. Or rather, I should say, uh, Charles Spurgeon has called this psalm the Song of the Slandered Saint. And I lifted uh, the title from his Treasury of David, uh, his his commentary on the Psalms. Uh, Now, over the last uh, few weeks, an ITV drama... Uh, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office uh, has brought to the attention of the public what has been described as the biggest miscarriage of justice in British history. Uh, The Post Office prosecuted 700 uh, sub-postmasters and sub-post mistresses, uh, an average of one a week, for stealing money from the Post Office, a prosecution that was based on evidence from a computer accounting system called Horizon. 
the computer system made it look like these people had stolen money from the post office. And some went to prison for false accounting and theft. Many were financially ruined, even though they had repeatedly highlighted problems with the software. Some attempted to plug the gap with their own money, as their contracts stated that they were responsible themselves for any shortfalls, and many faced bankruptcy and lost livelihoods as a result. Now, the sub-postmasters complained about bugs in the system after it falsely reported shortfalls, often many thousands of pounds. And whilst it was true that there were bugs, whilst it was true that these people were innocent, the post office and Fujitsu, the company that developed Horizon, wanted to save their reputations and they covered up their mistakes and they prosecuted anyway. And it's taken this drama to bring this miscarriage of justice to light and 25 years after it has begun, justice is beginning to come for those who have been falsely accused. And sadly, some have even died, some even taken their own lives before they received justice. Now, if you've watched this drama, and it's one that I would recommend watching, it's very good, in the sense that it's well made, it's obviously also very terrible about what's happened. If you've watched it, you will likely and rightly feel anger at what's happened. Because being falsely accused is a terrible thing, isn't it? And there are people in our church family who have suffered from false accusation. Sometimes it's come from work colleagues. Sometimes it's come from people at school, perhaps. Sometimes it's been from people we thought were our friends. Some have been falsely accused by spouses, children, in-laws, and so on. It is a really horrible thing to happen to have been falsely accused. And being falsely accused is the experience that David is writing about and singing about, praying about in this psalm. Here we have a prayer that we can pray when we have been falsely accused. Uh, you can see this from verse 3, where David says there, if I have done this. And then he offers a curse upon himself if he has, indicating that he has not done it. So that indicates that this is about being falsely accused, but the superscription gives us something interesting to note as well. Notice uh, in the su superscription, which is the, the uh, italicized piece uh, before the psalm itself, it says uh, that the psalm is a shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Do you notice that there? Well, a, a shigion is a, a type of song which we don't really know much about. But the important bit I want you to notice is that it was about Cush, who was a Benjamite. Now, there's no historical information in the Bible about Cush. But the incident that David is referring to also isn't written about in the Scriptures. But we do know that the Benjamites often caused problems for David. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. It was likely that he was the one who was after David, and King Saul 
would have listened to false accusations against David because he was looking for any reason to kill David. And because David succeeded Saul, effectively removing from the tribe of Benjamin any uh, future heirs to the throne, others from that tribe also were against David. So uh, Shimei, a relative of Saul, we read in uh, 2 Samuel, cursed David as David was escaping his son Absalom. Uh, Someone called Sheba, later on, from the tribe of Benjamin in 2 Samuel 20, drew people away from David during a rebellion. And so it's not surprising that here we read of a man called Cush being from the tribe of Benjamin, causing David problems. So we don't know exactly what David was accused of, but it was probably some kind of treason, judging by the mention in verse 4, of being a bad ally and robbing enemies without cause. And this psalm helps us, but it also points us to Jesus and is ultimately his prayer, as are all these psalms, for Jesus was falsely accused and was crucified because of it, which we'll see a bit later on. So in this This musical of God's people, we're still in a section in the Psalms uh, of King David being in trouble, showing us his suffering as he is becoming king, foreshadowing the suffering of Jesus and how Jesus prays and how we can pray in these various situations. So in the third Psalm, we saw the great suffering of David, the rebellion of his son Absalom, which was war. In Psalm 4, we saw the suffering of drought and the questioning of the ability of God's king to grant prosperity to his people. In Psalm 5, we saw propaganda against God's king, so his people would potentially turn away from God if they believed the lies of the enemy. And last time in Psalm 6, we saw how to pray well when we are feeling unwell, a prayer during sickness. And here we have the song of the slandered saint, how to pray in false accusation. So we're going to look at this this Shigeon of David in three parts. In the first part, we see a cry for deliverance. First of all, notice uh, in the first verse, David uses the name, Lord my God. Uh, It's the first time in the Psalms that Lord and God in that way are united now we see it here and in verse 3. And the name, Lord my God, shows David's ground of confidence. The Lord is the personal name of God for his people. He is the God who delivers his people, who makes covenant with his people. And the Lord is David's God. And because of who God is, the, the God who is the saviour of his people, the only one who is God, David has confidence to go and pray and David goes, and we, we read there, takes, we see he takes refuge in, in God, in the Lord his God. He says, Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Uh, refuge is a, is a place of safety. If you imagine uh, you're on a mountain and there's an avalanche that's, about, that's coming down, if you see a cave and you go in the cave so that the snow goes over you, you are in a place of refuge. So you're not buried in the snow, you are safe in the place of refuge. But in order for the refuge to be of use, you've got to go into it, haven't you? 
Imagine if you're on that mountain and you, you see the snow coming down. You don't just stay there and, and look at it and wait to be covered. You go into the place of refuge. And that's what David is saying here. He's, he's going to the place of refuge who is the Lord his God. And David's praying or is singing is him entering the place of refuge. He's approaching the Lord his God. He's entering the place of refuge from false accusation and the impact of those accusations. And when David enters the refuge of God's presence, he makes this request. You can see it at the end of verse 1. He says, save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Now, the pursuit is happening because of false accusations. And if you've been accused of wrongdoing and you're not declared innocent, you are likely to be pursued. If serious enough, you will be pursued even by the police if you've been accused of something uh, that is a crime. Whether it's true or false, if there's the accusation there, then you may well come um, to, to have to face the police and give an account. And the consequences of David being pursued here are very severe indeed. Look at verse 2. He says uh, in verse 2, Or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Now that image of a, of a lion tearing apart is one that is familiar to any of us who have seen any of those nature programs that film lions doing just this. Um, they're, they're on the TV quite often. Uh, and if you've ever seen one, you'll, you'll know how ferocious a lion is when it's got its prey. It doesn't just play with the prey, does it? It doesn't just like, tickle it. It rips it apart. And that's how David is feeling. If, if he's pursued because of these allegations, they're going to rip him apart like a lion. Interestingly, the literal translation here is, they will tear my soul apart. And it's likely his life is under threat, but, but false accusation also does something to our inner being. It does something to our souls. As Spurgeon says that the, the wounds of the tongue can cut deeper than the sword. And there is a deep hurt, isn't there? A deep hurt at being falsely accused in our soul. And again, if you've, if you've seen any of the interviews with those who were involved in that post office scandal, who had been falsely accused, you can see that it was the, the damage to their reputation and their integrity which hurt more than the financial cost that was inflicted upon them. It was, did something to their, to their soul. And at the end of verse 2, David speaks of having no one to rescue him. The point being that unless God delivers him, no human being can help. And in this cry for deliverance, we see here how prayer is such a critical part of our lives. It is practical faith. It's the way of us entering into the, that, that cave of refuge. Already in the Psalms, we've seen the blessing of having God as a refuge. So in Psalm 2 verse 12, we read, blessed are those who take refuge in him. In Psalm 5 and verse 11, we read, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. And when false accusation comes our way, what is normally our first response? Usually it is anger, it is lashing out, it is denial, and so on. Now some of those responses are not necessarily wrong, but our first response should be to pray. 
For it's in the presence of God that we get right perspective and where we gain wisdom in how to respond. Praying first helps us not to overreact or be overly anxious. Now, of course, we need to act at some point if we're falsely accused, but we need to marry our actions with prayer. And in fact, that is not just true with regards to false accusation as a general rule in life. Praying first before acting is always the best thing we can do. However, we can only make this cry of deliverance to God and take refuge in God against false accusation if the accusation is false. And secondly, we see from David a claim of innocence in verses 3 to 5. Again, notice in verse 3, David uses that same name, Lord my God. And then he makes this claim of innocence. Now in verses uh, 3 and 4, we see a claim of innocence beginning with three ifs. ifs. Now the NIV obscures the second, but it goes like this. If I have done this, so if I've done what I'm accused of, if there is guilt on my hands, so uh, that's like like fingerprints or uh, caught red-handed or blood on your hands, if there is guilt on my hands and if I have mistreated a friend or a foe. So in verse 4, the ally is treated with evil and the foe is robbed. Uh, another word for robbed is, um, is plundered. That's maybe a, a, better, a, a good word because sometimes if you're in a, a situation of war, uh, plundering the enemy is an appropriate action in a war. But if you're not in a war, you're not supposed to plunder people. So when you go to someone's house to visit, you're not supposed to go in their fridge and plunder it, are you? That's just wrong. That is plundering without cause. That's a good word for some of you teenagers, by the way. Uh, it's a good, uh, you can, there's a, a time to plunder, but there's also a time not to. And David's saying, if I've, if I've plundered without cause, so there's three ifs there. If I've done it, if there's guilt on my hands, if I've mistreated friend or foe, and then in verse 5, there is the then. So we've had the if, and then there is the then. And we see three consequences from the three ifs. And the three consequences are, let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Again, David actually is saying, pursue my soul. So let them get me and make me feel the weight of what I've done, if it's true. Or then, let him trample my life to the ground that's a strong phrase, by the way. Elsewhere in the Bible, the word for trample is used uh, for a potter mixing clay by foot, for a vinter crushing grapes, for a crowd trampling a man, and for horses trampling Jezebel underfoot. It is, it is to end his life. It's to end his life, he's saying. If this is true, kill me. And the final then in, in, in the NIV is make him sleep in the dust. But what this means is that he would be forgotten. His glory is no more. He's made to be nothing. So there's a progression of consequences. If I've done this, and if I've done this, and if I've done this, then let me be caught, let me be killed, let me be forgotten. David is effectively calling a curse on himself if the accusations are true. The implication being, of course, they're not true. And I think the application for us here is this. If we are going to defend ourselves against false accusation, 
we had better be sure we are actually innocent of what we are accused of. There is a call here to examine ourselves and to ask God to show us where we are wrong. Don't fight to clear your name if you're guilty. And this happens to us more than we might like to admit. Because there are some times when we are accused of a sin, and it's not always a false accusation, but we still deny it. We deflect it by accusing the person accusing us of doing something themselves. Or we distract people from it altogether. And sometimes we are accused of what are blind spots. Things that we do in our life that we don't see, hence the name blind spot. And usually when we're accused of a blind spot, because we don't see it, we deny it. But it's worth taking time to examine ourselves before exonerating ourselves. Is this true? Is what this person is saying true? Now, sometimes people do make outrageous allegations. But oftentimes, when we are accused, it it, it can be true. And so it's worth examining ourselves, as David is doing here. But David was definitely not guilty of what he was accused of. He was pursued. He was in danger. And so after crying for deliverance and making his claim of innocence, we see David offer up, a call for justice. And this call for justice is in verses 6 to 17, and it falls into three parts with a response of thanksgiving in the final verse of the psalm. We see in this call a request for justice, being ready for justice, and then we see the reality of justice. So first of all, the request for justice. There are three calls for God to act here. So Uh, In verse 6, he says, Arise, Lord, in your anger. There is an assumption here that David makes that God is angry at injustice. And we see this all through Scripture. God is not passive. God is not up there not caring. God is angry at injustice. In fact, one of the benefits of the rule of the Messiah was that he will bring justice for the oppressed. So there's an assumption that God is angry at injustice that makes David pray for God to rise up in his anger. David assumes God's not up there okay with what's going on. Number two, he says, rise up against the rage of my enemies. So the enemies are raging against David and God's seemingly thus far not doing anything. So he's saying, rise up. It's like trying to get someone out of bed. Come on, get up now. Let's go. Which is kind of what he's saying when he also goes on to say, thirdly, awake my God, decree justice. It seems like God's asleep. Now, God never sleeps, but the poetry speaks of God here as if he is asleep. It seems as if he's not doing anything. And and David's requesting that God wakes up and brings the justice that David requires because of these false accusations. It's interesting to note how David here asks God to decree justice because when God decrees something, it always stands. So who God says is innocent is innocent. Who God says is guilty is guilty. There's no arguing. There's no overturning it. What God says stands. It's true always. He's the judge over all. And so David wants God to make known by decree he's innocent. Because if God does that, There's nothing anyone can say, David is innocent. 
if God says so. And so David calls God to act in verse 6. And in verses 7 to 8, he explains how he wants God to act. There's a call in these verses to a courtroom. So in verse 7, the assembled people gather (coughs) around God as he sits on a throne. The phrase assembled peoples is congregation. It refers to the people of God. So David wants God with his people to gather and to bring judgment. Let the Lord judge the peoples, David says. And in the middle of verse 8, we see that David is confident that when he faces God and his people, he will be declared innocent and his enemies will pay for what they have done. Notice in the middle of verse 8, David asks to be vindicated or judged. He says, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity. Now, it's important to note here, David is not claiming absolute righteousness. He's not saying here, I've never done anything wrong. So God can judge me because I'm always right. No, he's claiming righteousness here regarding what he's been accused of. I've not done what they're saying, is what he's saying. He has integrity. He's confident he's not done wrong here. He wants justice and so asks God for it. So if I've been accused uh, of, of stealing something from your home and I haven't done it, I can claim to be judged according to my righteousness in that I have not done what you accuse me of. What I can't do is say, God, I've never done anything wrong. That would be silly, wouldn't it? So David here is saying, judge me according to my righteousness because I've not done this. And it's right that we ask God to bring justice when we are falsely accused. This is true when there is a major scandal like we've seen with the post office. But God cares about righteousness, not just in the major things that make the TV. He cares about righteousness and justice in your home. He cares about righteousness and justice in your school and in your workplace and in the church. And we can bring our requests to God and ask him for justice in the big and the small, in whatever area of our lives. But in verse 9, we see a wider longing that goes beyond David's specific situation. Look at verse 9. David says, Bring bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God, who probes minds and hearts. So there are two requests here regarding the final and full justice against all wickedness. Uh, David's asking for sin to be ended and righteousness to be established permanently. So there will be a day when all sin will be brought to an end and the righteous or, or God's people will be secure forever. In New Testament language, what David is praying is, come Lord Jesus. It's a longing for Jesus to return and make everything right And when you look around our world, not just when you look at what's happened with this post office drama, but you turn on the news, you look at what's happening in all sorts of nations, you look at what's happening even in our own country in various ways, don't you long for that day? Don't you long for the day when God will make everything right, when sin will be ended, 
and righteousness is established forever. We should express that longing to God in prayer, asking Jesus to come. And how can we be sure that God will answer that request at the beginning of verse 9? Because of the end of verse 9. Because God is righteous. And God can bring justice because he knows the mind and the heart of every single person. There is nothing that goes on. There is no sin and no injustice that God does not know about from him probing the mind and heart of every person. One of the interesting things in that drama was how things were tried to be, sin was hidden. And people thought they would get away with hiding sin. But you can hide nothing from God. And one day, everything will be revealed. Uh, Jesus says these words, So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak of in the daylight, what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now in many ways, that is some of the most terrifying words in the Bible, isn't it? He knows everything. Everything. And there may be people here that are hiding sin under the carpet and thinking you will get away with it. God knows it all and it will come to light. And so if that scares you, good. But here's the thing you need to be aware. The next part of the psalm says that we should be ready for justice. Be ready for it. In verse 10, David refers to God as his shield. This refers to God as his protection. He saves the upright in heart. The upright in heart are those who will not face God's judgment because they've been forgiven of their sin. And in the New Testament, that means that Jesus has paid the price for us. His sacrifice on the cross, taking the place for our sin, means that we are shielded or protected from God's judgment. So we can be ready for that judgment day because we know that Christ has paid for our sin. We don't need to fear everything being revealed because it's been forgiven and paid for. That's being ready for judgment. We need that shield, don't we? We need the shield of God's protection because when all is revealed, we know we're guilty, don't we? We're talking here of false accusation But when we come before God, everything he says will be true. He will reveal it, it will be made known, and there will be no lies on that day. And God knows about these things now. He doesn't need to wait for the day when it will be revealed. And verse 11 reminds us that God is a righteous judge. And as a righteous judge, there is only one response that he can have to our injustice. He's angry. And it says in verse 11, he displays his wrath every day. Now we can understand this anger at injustice, uh, again, from what we've seen recently with that drama on the post office. Those people who suffered injustice were rightly angry. And if you watch something like that, it makes you angry. That in our nation, that kind of injustice can go on. You think, how can that be? Injustice makes us angry. But what we see makes us angry. Imagine God who sees everything all the time. The stuff that we don't see, and so we're not angry at it yet, 
The stuff we don't see because it's not revealed on a big TV drama. God sees it all. And God is angry every day with what is going on in the world that he has made. Anger here is not God lashing out. It's his settled and his right response to evil in the world that he's made. And he displays it every day. How? Well, Romans 1 tells us it's displayed by him allowing sin to run its course, allowing people to continue their destructive paths that lead to hell when they don't repent. But there will be a day when God's anger will be fully on display in the final judgment. And that's coming. And so we need to be ready for it. And that's the truth of verses 12 and 13. God's ready. God's ready for that day. Now, the beginning of verse 12 is difficult to translate. The question is, who is the he at the beginning of verse 12? So verse 12 says, if he does not relent. Some say it's God turning back his anger, being merciful. Others say it's the enemies of God that they need to repent. What's likely is that it's both. Because sometimes in Hebrew poetry, a word can mean two things at the same time. God may have mercy, And we must repent of our sin. Because if either doesn't happen, justice is ready to arrive. And in verse 12 and 13, we see God as a military judge waiting with execution uh, weapons to bring justice. So notice his weapons. It says, the sword is sharpened, the bow is bent and strung, and the arrows are ready. Uh, In a, a modern way of putting it would be, his finger is on the trigger waiting to take the shot. That's kind of uh, what we could say. God's justice can come at any time on any of us. It's, It's there, it's ready. And so the call on us is to repent. At the end of Psalm 2, I remember saying that there is no refuge from him, only in him. And so tonight, if you're here and you've not come and admitted your sin to Jesus and sought forgiveness of your sin from him, then tonight, now, ask for forgiveness so that you are ready to face God. Jesus has died in your place for your sins. And if you put your faith in him and you ask him for forgiveness, he will forgive you. And then you are ready for that day. But if you refuse to do that, the moment of his justice could come at any moment in time. And so it's not worth ignoring this call. Because at the end of this call, we see the reality of justice. The points of verses 14 to 16 is to show how evil or crime doesn't pay. We see what Ron writer calls the fertility of evil and the futility of evil. So in verse 14, we see the fertility of evil. Look at the verse. It says, whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. The word for whoever here actually literally is the wicked man. And so what we see here is a a gross, shocking and bizarre situation of a pregnant man, which I need to say in these days does not happen. (laughs) Only women can be pregnant. But it's to show here the horror of evil. A baby grows inside the womb and then is born a beautiful baby. That's, what, that, that's the, the normal course of life. But in this situation, evil is growing in the womb. And look what's born. 
trouble and disillusionment. In other words, you're carrying within you evil like a pregnant mother and you're expecting a good delivery, something beautiful, but what you're getting is trouble and disillusionment. And you end up facing God's wrath and you find out that it was not worth taking that evil path. And then in verses 15 and 16, we see the futility of evil. Uh, the, the picture here is of someone, it's quite an amusing picture, of someone digging a hole uh, to catch an animal. That's what they would do to, to catch it. They'd dig a big hole, they'd cover it up so that when the animal ran over the hole, they'd fall in. And the stupid person walks over the hole they've dug themselves and falls in their own trap. And that's what happens when you rebel against God or when you make false accusations. In the end, it will trip you up. And that's, that's the truth spoken of in the Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 26, 27 says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. And then in verse 16, we see the Hebrew version of a boomerang. Your trouble will come back at you. It does not pay to rebel against God. There will be justice and it is right that we call for it and we can be confident in doing so. And it's because David knows that this call will be answered, because he knows that God is righteous, that he ends the psalm with thanksgiving and praise. There's no indication in verse 17 that he's been vindicated. By all accounts, the, the false accusation is still hanging over him. But what we see here is him responding to justice. He's responding to what he knows about God, even if it has not yet fully been displayed. David knows the future. David knows his God. He knows how the story will end. And so David says, I will give thanks. I will sing the praises of the name. Uh, there's two ways you could look at this. David's either saying, I will give thanks, I will praise anyway. Or he's saying, I will give thanks, I will praise, because there's a time coming when I'll be able to look back and see what God has done in bringing me justice. And both those things are good. We praise God anyway, because we know he is a righteous judge. And we can look forward to a day when we'll praise God looking back to the justice he has brought. But for us today, as Christians, as we sing this psalm, we have more to give thanks for and praise God for than David. Because for us, justice has been displayed more than David saw. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who brought God's justice in a whole new and greater way. Jesus suffered from false accusation. He was accused of plotting to destroy the temple. He was accused of being the devil. And as we read earlier, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. But when Jesus died on the cross, he did so willingly, not because he deserved to. He did so willingly to pay the price for our injustice. And God showed that Jesus was innocent of crime and that he had paid the penalty for sin by raising him from the dead. And so now we know 
that he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so Christian, when you are accused, will stick for what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whose God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus sees it all. And when his people are accused, he pleads their case to the Father. And so we can look forward to the day when justice will be fully done and all will be well. This gives us hope when we are falsely accused. Until that day, let us pray like David prayed. Let us pray like Jesus prayed. Let us trust our Father to do right. And we can show our trust by responding not only to justice in the past, but on justice that is coming, the day of the Lord. And we can, like David in verse 17, give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness and sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. Well, in a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table, a place where we're going to remember the justice and the mercy of God displayed most clearly of all. But we're going to, first of all, sing together. Uh, We're going to sing to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table by singing, Come and See. And we're going to think about the cross being the place where God's wrath and God's mercy meet. Let's stand as we sing together.
Uh, please, please take your seats.